We continue our sermon series in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 34. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen behind me. Also in our church app, there is a sermon listening guide that you can download and look at. That'll have the scripture printed at the top along with some ways to just help listening as the sermon is taught. Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 to 35. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. As he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with them. Child psychiatrist psychiatrist Robert Coles tells this story of a class he was teaching. It was a graduate class at Harvard University. And he said this, recounting this story, a highly regarded psychiatrist recently told me in despair I've been doing therapy with a man for 15 years. He is as angry, as self-centered, and as mean as he was the first day he walked into my office. The only difference is that now he knows why he is so angry and mean. Dr. Coles pointed out that this man had learned from the psychiatrist, had gotten insight on his early childhood. Now, the the wounds from childhood had contributed to his adult dysfunction, but that the man still hadn't changed. So Robert Coles went on to say this. Could we conclude that what this man needed wasn't just information, but transformation? But is transformation possible for human beings? Is it possible for people to really, truly, functionally change? Everyone wants to change to some degree. You want to be more, if you have kids, you want to be more patient with your kids. Or you want to get, stop getting angry at your boss at work or the people that work for you at work or you want to stop racking up credit card debt, or maybe you want to stop turning to alcohol or drugs to medicate the pain that's in your life, or maybe you want to get better at loving people, or you want to be more merciful and compassionate to people who are actually struggling, or maybe you want to see victory in the area of lust in your life. We all want to change to some degree because we all see how flawed we are. The question is, 
How do you change? How does a person actually change? And to answer that, we're going to start off with how you don't change. The death of hiding, specifically of hiding from glory. And then we're going to look at how you do change. The life of gazing at glory. So let's start with the death of hiding. Verses 29 to 30. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. The Hebrew, which is the original language that the Old Testament is written in, literally says here, the skin of his face sent out horns, which says that that expression means there were rays of light coming from Moses' face. And it says that Moses was unaware of it. So this was, a, this was not a subjective experience. This was the light of the glory of God reflecting off of Moses' face to his people. Now, how do the people respond? Verse 30. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. They were scared to death. The light of God's glory shone from Moses' face on his people, and they were scared. Why? Because their guilty consciences were accusing them. They were sinners. They knew it. They knew they had failed to keep the Ten Commandments that were written on the two tablets that Moses had just brought down from the top of Mount Sinai. Moses had brought down two tablets earlier, and he broke them when he saw the golden calf. So Moses went back up the mountain, got two new tablets with the Ten Commandments, and had just brought them down. They were guilty, and they knew it. They were afraid of God executing judgment on them for their sin. How does a criminal in the middle of the night, respond to the spotlight that comes down on him from the search helicopter. He runs, he hides, he takes cover. And that's exactly what's happening here. God's people are scared of the light of God's glory that's shining on them. Now, how does Moses respond to their fear? Look at verse 33. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. So Moses veiled the light of God's glory that was scaring the people. He covered God's glory. And we can assume the people were thrilled with this. They were thrilled. That's what they wanted. They wanted to hide from the light. And so Moses put the veil on and they hid. They wanted to hide from the exposure of God's glory. 
and what it brought to them. Rather than sit in the uncomfortable spotlight of God's glory that brought guilt and shame, they hid. They hid from it. It's the story of the human condition going all the way back to the beginning of history. The first people God ever created, our first parents, Adam and Eve, when they sinned against God, says that God came to them in the garden, which means that God, and it says that when they heard, Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God coming, meaning the the spotlight was coming. The spotlight of his glory was coming towards them. It says they hid from his presence among the trees of the garden. That's the natural human response to being confronted with the glorious holiness of God. It's to hide. Why? Why do we hide? Because no one, no one likes to feel guilt and shame. No one likes to be exposed and to feel the guilt and the shame of their sin. Well, how do you avoid guilt and shame? It's painful. How do you actually avoid guilt and shame? You hide. And hiding takes on two forms. The first form of hiding is hiding from God. It's hiding from God. That's what the Israelites did here. They hid. They put the veil over Moses' face. They hid from God's glory. They were attempting to hide from God. But what does that look like today? To hide from God. I'll tell you what it looked like for me as a college student. I joined a fraternity in college, and I started to enjoy partying. I deep down knew it was wrong. I was raised in a a church environment of sorts. I was raised in a moral environment. And so I knew it was wrong. I knew it was wrong before God's eyes, but I didn't care because I was having fun. And then there was this freshman that joined our fraternity. And I'll never forget, he came up to me and he said, Keith, what does the Bible say about drunkenness? You know how I answered him? I don't know, and I walked away. Oh, I knew. And I avoided every one-on-one conversation with him in the future. Because that was when, in my story, that's when the light of God's glory began shining on me, and I didn't like how it felt. Because it exposed my shame and guilt. And so I hid. I hid from God, I hid from those who represented God to avoid the shame and the guilt. I knew a man, this was years ago. He was married, he had kids. He was a faithful church attender. We tried to get him involved in a small group and he would never join one. He always had a reason that, you know, the kids are, it's just too crazy with the kids or my job is just, it's so stressful. I'm working way too many hours. I just don't have time for it. And then a couple years later, a secret life of infidelity and sexual immorality was uncovered. 
why didn't he enter into a small group? Well, it's easy in a worship service to hide amongst several hundred people. It's a lot harder to hide amongst 10 people sitting in a den where there's a degree of vulnerability and transparency. He was hiding. One of the ways that we avoid the shame and the guilt of our sin is to hide from God, which sometimes takes on the form of hiding from church, hiding from any religious environment, hiding from those that represent God. But there's a second form of hiding, and that's hiding from your sin. So if you don't take the route of hiding from God, to avoid the guilt and shame, you only have one other option, and that is to hide from your sin. What does that look like? Well, it looks like making excuses for your sin or justifying your sin with statements like, if you had the boss I had, you'd get angry too. Or, if you were going through the hardship and struggle that I'm going through, you would drink too much too. And it's that making excuses or a justification. Or another way that you hide from sin is to blame others or to blame something for your sin with statements like, if she wouldn't have provoked me, I wouldn't have done that. In other words, it's her fault that I did that. I was reading an article recently about a sportscaster who was announcing a high school girls basketball game, live stream, because we're in a pandemic. They played the national anthem, and then they went to, or what he thought they were going to, was commercial break. And then he said some very inappropriate, offensive comments that he thought was not live, but it was live on the air. They approached him afterward. I mean, obviously, it just went viral. And they approached him and asked him what happened. And he said, I have diabetes. And when my sugar spikes, I become disoriented and I say inappropriate things. He blamed his comment on diabetes. Now, that's an extreme example of hiding from sin by shifting blame. But you and I do it all the time in much more subtle ways. Who are you hiding from? What sin are you attempting to hide from? Hiding promises at least temporarily ease from the pain of guilt and shame. But hiding ultimately only brings death. And it certainly never brings change. So what does? If hiding doesn't bring change, then what does bring change? We turn our attention from hiding to the life of gazing. The life of gazing at glory. There's actually an incredible commentary on this passage in Exodus 34 in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, explains what happens here 
when Moses' face is veiled. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul actually explains how you change by describing and explaining the veil, by explaining the agent of change, and then he explains the gaze, the gaze of the eye, the gaze of the eyes of the heart. Let's start with the veil. 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 14. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. What was being brought to an end? It was the old covenant. It was the covenant God made with Moses that involved the tabernacle. It involved the sacrificial system. But that whole old covenant was temporary. It was pointing to a greater and more permanent reality to be found in the Messiah, in Christ, in the new covenant with Christ. And so the Israelites were to gaze through the old covenant to the Messiah to come, to Christ. But it says instead of doing that, they were filled with unbelief. Their hearts were hardened. And so they had this, this veil of unbelief. When God's glory shone on them through the light that reflected off of Moses, rather than repenting and believing, they chose to hide from the light. And that hiding was an, a form of unbelief. They wouldn't believe. And then that created this veil, right? this veil that kept God's glory, the light of God's glory from entering into their hearts. So for there to be any change in a person, that veil of unbelief has to be removed. And I will just say that the veil that exists at a cultural understanding is very different than the veil that exists according to God, the veil of unbelief. Let me explain it. The cultural understanding of how people change and the veil is this. The light is inside of you. Goodness is inside of you. But there's all these environmental barriers. There's all these veils that keep the true light that's in you from shining forth. And so the way that you change and become who you really are, so this shining star inside of you can come out, is to remove all of those cultural, environmental barriers and veils that exist. God speaks of change just the opposite. God says the light's not inside you. In fact, what's inside of you is darkness. And it's the veil of unbelief that keeps God's light from shining into your heart and bringing light into the darkness. The difference between those two paradigms is on the cultural understanding side, that produces what we would call overcoming stories. God's understanding of change in the veil produces conversion stories. Right? Overcoming stories are 
I'm good. There's light inside of me. But all of these circumstances and situations and veils and barriers are keeping me from shining. And so I've got to overcome those. And so our culture has been filled with overcoming stories, but those don't produce change. Right? What produces change is conversion stories to say, no, I need to believe that God is the light, that he sent his light in Jesus Christ, by believing the veil of unbelief is removed, and now God's light can come into my dark heart and begin to produce change. So how do you change? You have to have a correct understanding of the veil. And the gospel understanding of the veil is polar opposite of our cultural, current cultural understanding of the veil and how people change. Second, how do you change? So we've looked at the veil. Second, you have to understand the agent of change. Verses 16 to 18 and 2 Corinthians 3. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Right? That's how the veil of unbelief is removed. When you turn to Christ, the veil is removed and you behold the glory of God. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Are being transformed. That's in the passive tense. That means it's something done to you, not something you do. Right, overcoming stories that are born out of the cultural understanding of change are about something you do. Conversion stories are about something God does when you believe. Something God does to change you. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings change. And Paul actually affirms this in the beginning of 2 Corinthians 3 by contrasting it to a very common misunderstanding of how change happens. Into verse six, he says, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The letter kills. The letter he's referring to there are the letters on the two tablets of stone, the 10 commandments. What he's saying is the 10 commandments, God's commands, his law actually produces the opposite effect on sinful people. It actually brings death because it exposes sin and the consequences of sin, which is death. But the Spirit brings life. What he's saying is this, the law of God, the commands of God can never change you. They can't bring life. They can tell you what it looks like to live in the image of Christ. They can tell you where you're headed to when you're perfect in glory, but the law cannot change you. Only the Spirit of God can. Now, let me get practical here as it applies to raising children. And you're gonna see here that what I, what I talk about can also be applied to adults. But let me apply it in the case of children here. If you have children and you are only managing their behavior. And what I mean by that is that you ramp up 
rewards and you ramp up consequences to get your child to do what you want them to do. You know that's possible. You can ramp up rewards and consequences enough to get your child to do something. There's nothing wrong inherently with rewards and consequences. They have their place. But if that is all you're doing, then you are functionally depending on the law, right behavior, to change your child. And the law can't do that. It doesn't have the power to do that. Only the Holy Spirit can change a child's heart. There's a great book. It's written by Ted Tripp. It's called Shepherding a Child's Heart. And it talks about the difference between merely managing behavior and shepherding a child's heart towards Christ, to the spirit of Christ that brings change. If you haven't read it, I would recommend it to you. It's excellent. The Holy Spirit is the one that changes a heart. So how do people change? We've looked at the veil. We've looked at the agent of change, the spirit. Finally, let's look at the gaze. Back to verse 18 again. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. When you turn to Christ in faith, the veil of unbelief is removed and you behold God's glory. When you behold God's glory, what do you behold? Hebrews chapter one, verse three. Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. When the light of God's glory reflected off of Moses' face and rays of light shined on the people, that was Christ shining on the people because Christ is the radiance of God's glory. When you gaze upon Christ, you are transformed into his image increasingly. You become like him. Why? Because when you gaze upon Christ, you gaze upon the one that took judgment for you in your place. You gaze upon the one that took your sin away. You gaze upon the one that gave you his righteousness. And you gaze upon the one who you will become like. One day, completely like when he returns. Moses in Exodus 34 tasted glory, which means he tasted Christ to some degree. But many years later, Jesus would take his three inner disciples, his closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, up a mountain. He took them up a mountain, and at the top of the mountain, it says that Jesus was transfigured. Just like Moses went up to the top of Mount Sinai, now, Jesus ascends to the top of a mountain, and when he was transfigured, the gospel reports that Jesus' face shone like the sun, almost identical to the description of the light shining from Moses' face. So now you have Moses tasting glory in Exodus 34, and now Moses in the gospels, he was there, tasting Christ and his glory even more fully. And one day, Moses, along with all others who trust in Christ, will taste the glory of Jesus Christ fully. 
That's where things are moving. That's why you gaze on Christ. John, who was one of the closest disciples of Jesus, who was there at the transfiguration, who saw Jesus' face shining like the sun, wrote a few letters in the New Testament, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Listen to what he says in 1st John, chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Those words are coming from the man that was in the presence of Jesus when he was transfigured. He got a preview of the resurrection, preview of glory, and now he speaks of it, of what we gaze at by faith that one day we will gaze at by sight. There's an art to tightrope walking. And new tightrope walkers or beginners all make the common mistake. And that is that when they get on the wire, they look down at their feet to make sure they have sure footing. And when they do that, they fall. Professional, experienced, successful tightrope walkers never look at their feet. They never look at the wire. They never look at their hands. They never look at the balance pole. They fix their eyes on the platform that they're moving towards. That's how they maintain their balance. You will never change by looking at your sin and trying to fix it. Now, by that, I don't mean that you ignore your sin or you just pretend it's not there or you're not aware of it. Not at all. But if you look at your sin, that's where your gaze is, and you try to fix it, you will descend into shame and guilt that will probably produce hiding, at least will produce you cycling back to the sin to medicate the pain from your shame and guilt, and it's a nasty spiral. You change by looking to Jesus Christ. The one who are you, you are becoming like. The one who you will be like when he returns. Psalm 34, 5. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. You want to get rid of guilt and shame in your life? You look to Jesus because he will never shame you. He will only honor you. And by his spirit, he will change you and transform you. Let's pray. Father, we confess our sin. We confess the guilt and the shame that it produces. 
We confess our hiding in subtle ways from you. We confess hiding from one another. We confess hiding from our sin in ways that maybe we're not even aware of, whether it be making excuses or blaming or, or justifying. We're hiders, Father. We confess it. It's our natural bent in our fallen nature. And yet we thank you that while we were hiding, Jesus, you didn't hide. Came out of glory, you came into this world, you put on flesh, you lived a perfect life. You didn't hide from the consequences of our sin that were, was placed on your shoulders. You died for us. You bore judgment for us while we were still turned away. And by your spirit, you have turned us to you. You rose from the dead. You've given us new life. Father, would you, by your spirit, fix our gaze on Jesus' face? And when we believe the promise that when we fix our gaze on you, Jesus, we will never be shamed, that you only honor us because you've taken away our sin. You've taken away our guilt. You've taken away our shame. Father, as we respond now by singing to you, would we sing as a people who are radiant? Radiant because our eyes are fixed on your son, Jesus. We pray this all in his name. Amen.